Welcome to Collector's Corner, the premier digital art platform. We help collectors gain and maintain their edge, all while appreciating beautiful art. Let's jump in. All right. Jared is here. It is noon Eastern. Jared just sent you the co-host invite. And, uh, what up? What up? Hello. Hey. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Living the dream is always super, super amped for this one. Uh, can't really, honestly. I, I actually just did a podcast yesterday with Node, Depeche Node, and this was one of the projects he brought up. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm around it. Super excited to, to dig in and, and hear more from from MV and, and really the community. This is going to be exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And MV, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm excited to to speak to you both, and uh, nice to meet you, Jared. I, we haven't met before, so uh, yeah, thank you. That's that's really really nice to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And for folks who don't know, MV, in addition to being an amazing artist, has a very charming British accent. I was telling him this is going to go over fantastically on Spaces. So that's that's more Easter eggs coming out here. <laughs> I, uh, I'm actually married to an American, so it's funny. It sort of uh, warps between slightly Americanized English and and uh, British English. So uh, I'll try and stick to the British for you, Pete. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep it British. I'll handle the American side. Me and Jared. <laughs> Just what, so thanks everybody for coming. Wanted to shout out a few folks in the crowd, a few friends. Uh, really appreciate you coming out. Von Mises, Node, Armanu, DeFi, aka Stevie. Stevie. Oh my gosh, sorry. Germ. So many awesome friends. Wim. Sorry for folks who I'm forgetting. Scrappy T, but we appreciate you all being out here. Oh, Jason, Tib, Calbear. We got an awesome crew. So. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. We are really excited because there's a couple of firsts that are happening. So really quickly, we're Collector's Corner. Uh, we just geek out on gen art. We love thinking about what's happening with the market, finding new art, talking to amazing artists like MV, other collectors too. And so it's just, this is what we do, all things gen art. And, uh, you know, we have a weekly newsletter I want to highlight because we've been putting a lot of time into that and people are finding a lot of value there. So check out our Twitter and uh, pinned at the top there is, sorry, in our profile is the weekly newsletter. So so please check that out. And my my name is Aston Cloud online here. My In real life, uh, my name, I don't normally say it, my name's Priyank in real life, but I go by P just because it's, it's way easier <laughs> for most people. And so, and Jared here up on stage is my co-host, Jared underscore pause. He is uh, also in addition to being my co-host and a father, and uh, having a job, he is building the Eight Nap Digital Asset Fund. So check that out. He's awesome, and you guys should really know about him if you don't already. Moving on, so just in, in really introduction to our guest that so we have up here, MV. MV is a fabulous generative artist. He and he's amazing uh, technically too. I mentioned this in our introduction introductory tweet thread, but he helped build the uh, minting engine for GM Studio built his own minting website and engine for his first release, which is called Z-Huge. You can find that on Artblocks. Did the release Mind the Gap with GM Studio, has a release called Shapes on a Plane on FX Hash. And we're here because we're talking about Render's Game, which is his next release coming out on Artblocks Monday, February 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, which is going to be amazing. And so just a huge thank you to MV for coming here. 
and doing this spaces with us. And I want to tell you really quickly why this is special because Jared and I, we interview artists and we do deep dives on their collections and it's just so much fun. We get to hear about the history of the artist, about you know how they came up with the collection, what were they trying to do, what techniques were they using? And then we dive into the traits, which is really cool for us as collectors. You might say, hey, you know, I really like this one trait that makes everything look really zoomed in or this other trait that like makes everything look really zoomed out. And, you know, Jared is a digital asset investor. I have so I treat some of these as investments. It's also nice to know what the different traits are because you can have a point of view on what the market might like. And perhaps you treat it as something both you hold and as an investment simultaneously. And we think it's really useful to understand these types of things when making those kind of decisions. And so for the first time ever, we were doing this before the collection releases. So just, again, want to say thank you to MV for being willing to uh, to do this with us and, and go on this ride. I think it's going to be amazingly fun. And so we're excited. And honestly, I, I Jared, maybe you can speak to this, but every single time we do one of these, it's like I just want more of the collection it just gives you such a great relationship with art it, it just takes the whole experience to another level yeah it definitely creates that personal connection with a collection that uh you know node and i talked about it yesterday it's, it's emotional right you want to be invested in in the art and the artist and in your story and, and what we're going to do today is hopefully tease out you know some of those points that hopefully each of you get a better and deeper appreciation of the art and feel a connection i mean this is from the the limited outputs I've seen, it's an absolutely stunning project, and I'm eager to do to do a deep dive further into it. Yes, hundred percent, and also a first for us. So, for anybody who is in the spaces, we're going to have a raffle to give away an allowed spot for Render's game. And the way that it works is there's 325 pieces for the whole collection. For the public, it's a Dutch auction starting at 8 Ether. There's an artist allow list where MV has given away a few spots to folks that would be 24 hours before the launch. And then one of the, the ones we're giving away is a collector allow list, which, and correct me if I'm wrong, MV, but I believe it will be active after all of the, the public mints have happened. Um, but importantly, it's going to be 0.25 Ether, which is criminally low for his work. So this is something that we feel like is is a, an amazing gift that he's giving away. So we really appreciate you doing that for the community. Yeah, no, that's correct. Uh, it's my pleasure. And um, thank you for letting me do something new with you guys. That's my happy place. I love love trying new things. So I really appreciate it. Um, it's awesome to to be here with you. Amazing, amazing. And so really quickly, the way the allow list is going to work is it's going to open in three minutes, so at 12.10 Eastern, and I'm going to give everybody here the password, and you have to, you're going to have to retweet the announcement for this spaces. I don't normally like to do that, but the goal here is to get as many people as possible to hear about MV, hear about his art, hear about his process. So we really want people who are listening to this to be eligible for this allow list. So you're gonna to have to retweet that announcement. We'll bring more people in and we're asking for your email address. We're gonna, we're asking to sign up for our Substack newsletter. It's free, you can cancel it anytime, but this has helped a ton of people and we think it might help you if you're interested in generative art. But again, zero strings attached. You can literally unsubscribe immediately afterwards. So that's how it'll work. 
And for everybody listening, I'm about to pin the tweet for the first entry. It'll be 20 minutes, and then we'll have another one that's open for 20 minutes with a different password. Okay, so this way, we're just really trying to maximize the amount of people who are coming in and listening to MV. So the first password for everybody, and I'll say it again five minutes before it closes. So the first password is one, two, three. That's it. Three numbers, one, two, three, and you can register. And I will say this again at... 12, uh, 12.25, five minutes before it closes. And then we'll have the second one jump uh, launch off. So just wanted to put that out there. Sorry if we're uh, kind of stuttering through it a little bit. It's the first time doing this, but I appreciate you working with us here. And now I'm going to shut up because I've talked for way too long and I'll throw it over to Jared as we start talking about MD and Render's game. So... MV, I'd like to dig into a little bit of your history in, in this, but I have to ask, uh, just based on the names of the project, uh, do you have like a second occupation as a comedian? Because I feel like uh, <laughs> the Renders game is a play on Ender's game, which was pointed out to me by Node yesterday, and then Shapes on a Plane might be like Snakes on a Plane. Is there is there really a second uh, occupation here that we're not aware of? <laughs> uh, you know what? It's... Um... It's funny, I like choosing names that I guess go a little bit beyond just sort of a surface level. So if you can think, oh, you know, Render's Game, what is it trying to say with with, with the name there? You know, is it a comment on the ecosystem? Is it a, a reference to the old book? Is it, you know, it's something that just, it, it's, it reminds you of something else, but it's also kind of its own thing and it leaves a little bit of mystery there. Um, and also a little bit of humour. I think, um, you know, it's... There's nothing wrong with adding something that's kind of a little tongue-in-cheek nod at your own self and your own work. Um, and I think Shapes on a Plane particularly made sense because, you know, the sort of isometric view work has sort of been proliferated in this space a bit. It, it kind of made sense to play with the idea uh, and take it to a concept that I guess is just sort of, you know, reflecting back in on itself a bit more. So, yeah, I, I try and balance, you know, something a bit serious in the name, but also something you know, a little bit curious and, and whimsical in there. So I'm not sure I'm quite a comedian. No, no, it's, it's <laughs> absolutely, insinuation. it's brilliant. I, I, the, the shapes on a plane in particular is such a, a appropriate name. And at the same time, it's got that undertone of, of humor. So real quick, can you give us a brief overview of you as an artist, how you got into web three? We always like to tease these out uh, as I feel we're all early, but, I always love enjoying and hearing about each and every person's uh, path to kind of where we are today. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been, I've been doing generative art. I mean, I didn't really call it generative art seriously until recently, but I've, I've kind of been taking art, you know, with software and making my own software seriously for probably about 15 years or so. Um, but I think my kind of journey into this started much earlier than that. Uh, my my mum's actually a fashion designer and I have these very sort of vivid memories of when I was a kid uh, sitting, you know, in her studio and kind of watching her go through this process where she would start by kind of sketching this idea very, very roughly, you know, on a piece of paper, working out kind of what the patterns were going to be and, you know, how different parts of this structure would kind of come together. Um, and then she would take these and start converting them into this uh into this format that she could use on this massive um 
massive knitting machine. And if you can sort of imagine, you know, me as this tiny kid sort of looking up at these huge looming machines covered in, you know, different needles and different runways for threads. And, you know, it was quite a quite an impressive sort of thing to see. And so she would sort of program these machines by uh, taking this piece of, you know, it looks sort of like acetate that you would use on a on an overhead projector or something. Uh, and on it was all these different lines that would describe, you know, uh, each of the individual uh, sort of rows in the pattern that she was trying to make. And she'd take this sketch and she'd manage to work out how do I, how do I turn, you know, this machine into creating this 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 garment that I want to see coming out of the other end. And so she'd feed, you know, these 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 rows of uh, you know dots and sort of little scribbles to kind of tell the machine what to do into the machine and each time she would you know run the uh, i think it was called a, a loom I i'm not entirely sure my knowledge knowledge of uh, of uh you know creating textiles is not great but she would run this thing across and it would sort of carry out those commands and gradually create this this structure that would that would come out and she would turn that then into the final garment and it was this lovely you know iterative process of her having this idea and you know, putting it into reality through this machine. And so I think that really, you know, at such a young age, it kind of set me down this path of seeing what it meant to be creative with a piece of technology. And it's funny because my mum was never, you know, she was never into computers. She had zero interest in them at all, other than, you know, just using them for this kind of creative service of, of what she wanted to do. And uh, when I got my first computer when I was about 12 years old, uh, me and a friend, he had an Amiga and I had a sort of really old PC. We just got obsessed with kind of learning about how games were made because we just wanted to play video games all the time, but we wanted to make games that, that we wanted to to play. And um, I remember discovering <coughs> this piece of software called Tracker Software, which is how a lot of game music used to be made. And a, a tracker, uh, it uses this this type of format called a mod file, and really all that is, is lines of commands sort of vertically that the computer would step through uh, and each command it would sort of carry out. So you'd say, hey, I want this note in this particular beat of the bar and I want this note in this particular beat of the bar. And then you could put you know, little commands to tell the computer what instrument or how it would express that. And it made this very clear sort of direct connection in my head with what my mum was doing on those knitting machines, which was to kind of give it these sort of commands for each line. And so I think somewhere, you know, that connection sent me down this path of starting to be really creative with, or at least trying to be creative with computers when I was really young. Um, and, you know, I quickly sort of wanted to learn, well, how do I, how do these commands work? How do I, how do I make better commands? How do I start trying to understand how even this particular piece of software is made? And, I think that's kind of a narrative that's stretched its way through most of my journey to where I am today. You know, this idea that by understanding machines better, right, understanding kind of how they work and what they do, we can better express, you know, our creative ideas or have different ideas that maybe someone else hasn't seen. You know, we're not limited just by what the tracker tells us we can do or what by that knitting machine, you know, my mum would kind of use, would let her do we can kind of expand out a little bit from that. And, you know, that led me into kind of ending up writing my own music software. And I spent quite a few years 
uh, yeah, building sort of synth engines and lots of different things that kind of let me express myself in different ways. And uh, I found this thing called the demo scene, which is a, a sort of interesting subculture, mostly sort of operated through kind of IRC and real life meetups where, uh, yeah, people would compete with effectively writing interesting graphics and sound and, um, you know, anything that you could kind of make on a computer as a demo. And then they'd compete against each other to sort of judge who kind of did the, the best demo. And a lot of it was about, you know, how small we can make the software and how much expression can we get into this, you know, this, this little piece of software that we're then kind of distributing out. And so, you know, that was a really fertile time for me. I wasn't an amazing coder back then at all, but I was, you know, through that, it kind of set me on this path of, trying to learn a lot more about the kind of fundamentals. Well, this is awesome. Um, I mean, essentially, the, every piece of art that you release into uh, the wild is this really amalgamation of a lot of life's experience, which I think is is essential to, to everybody else's. I'm, I'm really fascinated with the, the influence that your mother had on this. Uh, is there anything in particular from the aesthetics or the creation because all of your pieces, to me, seem to have a particular flow to it. I mean, they're obviously not the same, but like, is there any correlation or 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 call it common theme it, for that? Well, it's interesting you say that. So, a lot of, I because I I learned um, like DSP and and you know learning how to make a lot of the the sort of software and the generative stuff early on with uh, with music, you know, in in an audio space. Um, a lot of the application of how I think about, um, you know, modifying uh, even simple things like noise fields, uh, you know, I just immediately apply my ideas of uh, sort of audio synthesis. So, you know, filtering things in certain ways, uh, different types of ways to compress uh, sort of noise fields so that you can end up with these much more lilting kind of interesting flows in the movement of the piece, even if the noise is not necessarily visible and present. Um, and I actually think, cause, you know, a lot of, I, th I think it's very easy to just go and get a, a noise algorithm and you know put that in your piece and just use that to kind of move something around or influence it in a certain way. But you know, I think for me, it's very much about making that my own <laughs> through the kind of skills that I've learned on how to sort of modify those things. So uh, I'm really glad you see that. Actually, I don't think anyone's really pointed that out in in that way before. Um, I guess that's that is slightly different from you know from the way that maybe I see other people use those techniques. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's 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 like hard for me to fathom somebody creating such good visual art, and then you have the music, and and I'm sure your code is just as beautiful. So it really, I think it's amazing for folks to hear just how long you've been focused on this and working on these techniques and what that's led to. Super, super impressive. And, I think. Um, oh, sorry, mm -hmm. P. I didn't mean to interrupt you. My no, please go ahead. Apologies. I was going to say, I think it's, it's funny because as I've got older, you know, I remember reflecting on, you know, seeing my mum learning how to use this machine and thinking, well, that's the hard bit. You know, the hard bit is learning how to understand the machine and make the machine work in the way that you want to. And then even, you know, playing around with and modifying the machine or changing the stuff around it. But, it, but I've realized, you know, <laughs> I think this is part of maturing as, a, as an adult and, and as an artist. But I've realized actually the hard bit is really understanding how to express yourself and what it is that you want to put into that in the first place it doesn't matter how good you are at sort of learning the fundamentals of a machine or a system you know it still really comes down to everything else that goes around that 
you know, what are you inspired by? What moves you? What what experiences are you having with things that you can kind of pour into that? Um, and yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that I try and do is sort of trying to find what feels like myself, you know, in those environments. You know, what is emotional to me? Um, and I didn't realize that I think until a lot later on in kind of doing music and art, it was, you know, it was something where I was just so focused on the technology that I kind of, yeah, I kind of didn't spend enough time with all of the stuff that made that meaningful. So I, that's why I say, you know, I've only really been doing this for, I think the last, you know, 15 odd years sort of somewhat seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I think it's funny, just as I get older and, and, and more accepting of myself, I think I'd be more able to put myself into that creative process. Um, but, you know, I wanted to, that's actually a perfect transition, MV, to Render's Game. And, and just so everybody knows, we're, we're saying MV, Mount Vitruvius is uh, Anthony's artist name, but MV for short. So if, in case you're wondering, that's, that's where the MV comes from. And one super quick uh, shout out for the allow list. It's going to close in nine minutes. You have to click on the link that's pinned up here. And the password again is just one, two, three, literally that, nothing else. This one closes in nine minutes. We'll open up another one at 1240, which will be open for another 20 minutes for folks who are coming in afterwards. Sorry for the little house cleaning stuff. Uh, Let's talk about Render's Game. You you told me when we were talking one-on-one -on -one about the inspiration for this. I would love for you to share that story because I think it's amazing and fits in perfectly with what you're saying about, you know, what inspires you and how you try to translate that to art. Yeah, no worries. I think um, it was about a year ago that I, I sort of had that, that, that moment of kind of realizing there was something that I wanted to do. Um, I was in the, I was in Paris with my wife. Um, we were visiting the Peritine Gallery, and Peritine's fantastic gallery. They they put on a lot of artists, you know, have a huge amount of respect for. And uh, there was an exhibition on by a gentleman called Lee Bay. Um, he primarily works in charcoal, and you know he'll he'll go through a lot of natural processes with the charcoal to then kind of you know uh, turn it into these pieces that that are just kind of otherworldly. Um, and I remember walking into the gallery and the first piece in the exhibit was, um, I forget the name of it in French, but it, it translates to from fire. And they're these huge canvases, which are, um, they, they almost look like the sort of monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, but they're made from bits of charcoal, these kind of skimmed, uh, and sort of reassembled in this very meticulous way onto these these canvases, and they're gigantic. And the, the, the charcoal actually extends like all the way around the edges of these things. So it just looks like someone's, you know, taken this huge block directly out of a giant slab of, of charcoal, and this kind of crystalline, intricate structure sort of emerges from it. And when you see pictures of these things, they really just don't do them, them justice in the slightest. You, you kind of have to be in that environment in a gallery and see the way that the light falls on them. And I remember just standing in front of this thing and seeing yeah, all these really intricate fractures and structures and the ways that they sort of intertwine themselves. So you could almost see each of the individual sort of blocks that kind of fit together. But then inside he had all these different sort of semi-fractured structures that kind of made these almost, you know, fractal-like looking 
um, assemblages. And I was just in awe, you know, it was like, um, it was a little bit like that scene in 2001 A Space Odyssey with the monolith, right, you know, rising up out of the stand. It feels both unbelievably natural, but also like it shouldn't really be there, and almost like it couldn't possibly exist. And so, you know, in my mind, I kind of, I took like a little note of sort of how I felt staring at this thing and kind of being in this presence of it. And I, I sort of wondered in the back of my mind for a while, like, how could I, how could I remake something that made me feel like that? You know, what was the, what was the thing that kind of triggered that in me? And um, it took me a few, few months and uh, it was actually, so this was before Shapes on a Plane, this was kind of, you know, I, I sort of realized I wanted to do something, but I didn't really know how to do it. And then, yeah, a few months, it was about a month or so, I think after I finished Shapes on a Plane, I was sort of exploring different ideas around algorithms and I kind of came back to this idea of it. And uh, yeah, I started piecing together some of the algorithms I thought could kind of help me restructure that sense of feeling. And um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, no I was going to interrupt your flow. So I apologize. You know, trying to pull in the, the inspiration for charcoal, I'm looking at Mint Zero on Artblocks right now, a renders game. And there's a, a beautiful integration, of my in my opinion, of color and different patterning amongst all the different shapes. Where, where did that come into? Because, I mean, there's like, a, I mean, even within the, the patterning of triangles, you have some that are center-focused, some that are just like, I'll call it triangles that become smaller and smaller in a concentric fashion. You know, I, I, I just hearing your story, it's like there's almost like this – draw from a, a tapestry you know the inspiration from your mother and the 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 art that you you just referenced in paris am i am i extrapolating too much or are you able to maybe no pun intended but shed some color on on how then all of that came out into renders game yeah no no of course and and the bit you've just touched on is actually how we've kind of ended up with this sort of slight science fiction naming scheme. I've, uh, it feels like a big jump, right? Going from that beautiful piece by Lily Bay to how do we get to sort of futurism and science fiction? Um, but to me, I'm fascinated by futurism as a, as a concept, you know, growing up Ender's Game was one of my very favorite books and it, and it sent me down this path of learning more about the history of, of futurism as a subject. Um, and I actually mentioned 2001 A Space Odyssey as one of the experiences I felt when, uh, you know, this, this idea of the monolith when I, was, when I was looking at this piece. And that, you know, when I dug into that feeling, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I grabbed onto there. It was like, how can I bring out something that's kind of my experience of that feeling of being in front of this piece? And I'm a huge fan of people like um, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, there's there's certain futurists that are just able to predict kind of where things are going to go many, many, many years before you'd even think it possible. So uh, Arthur C. Clarke is amazing. You know, if you if you see a geostationary satellite, uh, which is, you know, when, when you see a little point of light that obviously isn't a star kind of floating above you in the night sky, the process of, of, a, of a satellite being geostationary is called the Clark orbit because, you know, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer, came up with the idea for how that would work um, as part of one of his stories, and that actually got adopted by NASA. So NASA ended up sort of being influenced by that. Um, you know, and on the on the sort of uh, the flip side of that, 
if you actually watch the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, you see within the first hour of that film so many things that we just take for granted now. It feels like a contemporary film. You see someone sitting there with an iPad, you know, browsing the news. The internet didn't exist. It was in the 1950s. You know, none of this stuff had even sort of begun to be imagined. You see someone having a Skype conversation. You see spaceships that actually take on a similar structure to kind of how they actually do work now today. You know, light sort of structures with, you know, various pods attached to them to kind of enable them to be moved up there and built. And this ability for that guy to just see so much of how today was going to operate, it just, you know, it absolutely blows my mind. And um, yeah, so his collaboration with, um, well, so when, when they put together the film 2001 The Space Odyssey, uh, him and Kubrick, just really stuck with me as something that was very important for me to remember. And, and there's a parable here to kind of what I think we're doing in the crypto space. You know, when generative art sort of first sort of moved into the crypto space and people, you know, great people like uh, Def Beef were you know, putting these these programs on chain that people could run, you know, they were challenging this idea of the future of ownership. They were challenging this idea. They were futurists in that regard, you know, thinking about what digital ownership versus physical ownership was going to end up representing or, or what it meant to, you know, buy a piece of art from a program in a sense, kind of co-creating it and, you know, how that challenges the current conceptions of art. So, you know, while it seems like a, a leap in my mind, all of these things are sort of you know, parables of a similar voice. And so a lot of the the inspiration in Render's game um, comes from kind of honoring the past, uh, you know, the futurists of the past that have remained relevant even today. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad uh, sort of cyberpunk dystopian kind of visions. And I, I really wanted to try and distance this piece from that. So even, you know, even if you look at the video that I put out, it's it's trying to reflect you know, what I see is the kind of lasting means of, of what we see as kind of a potential future and, and how that looks and sort of how that then touches on, you know, going from something, as you said, like this structural Libay piece into something that's got this kind of slightly more futuristic sort of old but recognisable science fiction kind of feel to it. Um, so that was really kind of the connection between those two pieces uh, and, uh, in the palettes, you'll you'll see references to, to a lot of this. Uh, I think we're going to talk about them maybe later on. So I'll 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 go through them in that sense. Yeah. No. Aston yeah. has a question, but I'm I'm so eager to dive into palettes. I'm I'm going to bite my tongue too. Oh, so so many good palettes and so many features. You know, Jared and I both coming from an engineering background like to nerd out on the analytics side and break things down. But before we get to that, you were. I'm just really fascinated by how you went from this artistic intent and seeing the Lee Bay piece and the charcoal and then figuring out which algorithms to use. Like maybe you can talk a tiny bit about that process and also uh, you know, what, what algorithms you ended up really utilizing. Just It's almost helpful for us to even hear the names and learn about what some of these algorithms are. Yeah, sure. The um, so one of the things, the other pieces, uh, the bit I think we missed in the reference was was cubism, and that was actually the kind of you don't see cubism in the piece necessarily, but that was um, the inspiration for the process behind the algorithm, and it was the kind of the piece that the the piece of the puzzle that took it from just being you know these interesting sort of structures into something that actually ended up being um, yeah, I think a lot more interesting. 
but the if you think uh, if anyone opens up you know just google lee bay and look at the uh um from fire pieces that he's done you'll kind of see what i'm talking about um but as i was talking about these kind of lines that sort of form structure and then these uh these sort of shapes and these masses that end up kind of crystallized i was i sort of had it in my mind of how to how to achieve that and there's a couple of sort of classic um sort of computer science problems which um, I, I like to implement most of my algorithm or all of the algorithms actually for my work that i publish um myself to to truly understand how they work so then you can sort of you know manipulate them or change them or or adjust them in ways that you you know you wouldn't necessarily know how to do if you didn't make them um, so the first piece of the puzzle was working out how to do a really efficient Delaunay triangulation, which if you, I think the easiest way to imagine it is if you imagine you're holding a, a handful of, um, sand, you know, maybe you know, 200 little grains of sand and you throw them out onto a table. Um, a Delaunay triangulation, the goal is to try and draw a line, uh, or three lines to kind of connect uh, three of those pieces of sound into a perfect triangle, but doing it in such a way that none of them overlap um, and that there's no degenerate triangles. So that means, you know, no triangles that are missing a side or two sides. Um, and it's a really nice little concise sort of computer science problem. So I had, you know, I, I knew that that was going to give me some of this kind of depth and structure if I could change the way that you would sort of, you know, throw those pieces of sand out onto the table. Um, but it wasn't, you know, interesting enough sort of on its own. I needed to work out a good way of kind of bringing structure to the piece. And cubism, the philosophy for cubism is that you kind of, you know, you see an object and then you deconstruct it down into its 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 component form. I'm not an expert on this, by the way. This is just, you know, cursory reading of kind of cubist past and history. And I, f I find these sort of things really inspiring for thinking about how I, how I actually implement an algorithm. But... It, you know, the cubist process is to kind of see an object and kind of deconstruct it down into its very sort of base form and then reassemble it in a, in a sort of an interpretation, uh, your own personal interpretation of what that looks like. Uh, and so for me, you know, once I got this kind of triangulation process working, oh, another part of the puzzle there was actually uh, learning how to do um, uh, something called a hobby curve, which is, uh, again, there's a, there's a really good paper on, on how hobby curves operate, but you know, let's say we threw the, the, that handful of sand out on the table again. Um, the goal of a hobby curve is to say, well, let me number each one of these little uh, little grains of sand. And then how do I draw a perfect curve that curves right the way through each one of those grains of sand in turn? So those are kind of the two main structural components of how Render's game works. Um, you're, uh, you know, uh, the way it works is that there's a bunch of different ways that the sand can be thrown out. It's a bunch of different ways that those, those grains of sand can be given order. Uh, and then we draw, you know, the, these hobby curves over it to kind of coax these structures, um, out of those grains of sand. And then from that, we run Delaunay triangulations to, uh, effectively find all of these kind of interesting structures and intersections between the lines and between the grains of sand. Um, and then there's a process of taking all of that apart. So if you imagine the renders game algorithm running, um, if, you've, if you've run it, you'll see that it does this process of saying, uh, preparing and then sketching and then eventually illustrating. Well, the preparing and sketching is, is just all maths. There's nothing being drawn to the screen. It's this process of creating this structure and taking it apart again. Uh, and the only time it actually draws anything is in the sort of illustrating step towards the end there. Um, but when it's sort of built this structure, 
it starts taking it apart again and it uses uh, going back to the kind of dsp stuff i was talking about before this idea of you know processing things with with noise and processing things with with kind of um, like my audio sensibility uh it uses two different uh fields to then deconstruct and reconstruct the geometry again um so it does another delaunay pass uh, after it's kind of taken all of these pieces of geometry apart um that's probably a bit abstract i hope some of that made sense uh i think i think if you look at the if you look at the debug views um so keys one to four on your keyboard uh if you're looking at one of the pieces you can see number one actually shows you those grains of sand number two shows you the curves that are created from all of those grains of sand then number three and number four is showing you the maps that it uses to then deconstruct the piece before it's reassembled. Um, so uh, if you toggle between four, uh, five actually re-renders the piece, but if you toggle between three and four, you should be able to see kind of where uh, three is a complete mask. So it'll actually remove um, elements within that space. And four is actually used um, in a couple of different ways, depending on the genome um, to then reconstruct the triangles within the, the context of the space. So actually the whole piece is made of triangles and lines. That's pretty cool. I, a lot of that went way over my head. Uh, but I hope that some of the listenership can can gain something from it. And even the the toggling between three and four, it's one of the things I'm loving about generative art and specifically to this is, is the level of engagement and the the ability for the, the end collector to to further dive into it deeper. That 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 level of uh, engagement I think is something that as people discover gen art and they explore the the pieces more it will create that greater connection to it so and hopefully you know it, some of the listenership when you're when you acquire your pieces you know this level of insight will help each and every one of you connect to the piece a little bit further so thank you for sharing that that was actually um very insightful i'm, I'm playing yeah. between three and four right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for, for anybody listening, try to hop on your computer, go to uh, Art Blocks, go to the Renders game page and, and follow along. I'm throwing some tweets up here as well so folks can see. So if you look at some of the pinned tweets, we have a Lee base from Fire and there's a link to the website for that as well. So you can check that out. And uh, I also just recently linked to uh, our tweet thread where there are some of the images of Renders game outputs here as we start talking through that. And uh, last house cleaning thing, the second allow list. So if you missed the first allow list and you're just joining, uh, there's a second link up there. It's going to open up in one minute. The password for this one is 456. You know, we, we change it up to, to make sure you're actually listening um, to, to join that one. So I'll uh, shout that out one more time with five minutes left. But no, Envy, it's amazing to hear about these techniques. And, you know, I also am a novice. I don't know about these, but... The more I can hear about them, the more I can start learning and start understanding how you all do part of what you do and really the intricacies and complexities behind it. And so I appreciate you taking the time to explain that. And I do think that, as Jared mentioned, collectors can go back and listen to this and see, okay, like that's how it worked. Like that's how it was constructed. And that's a really, really fun for us to feel like not only are we getting this fantastic art, but we're learning something too. So really appreciate you going through that. And I'm going to pin one more tweet up here. So this is the fifth tweet pinned up here. And uh, I just took some screenshots of the different traits of Render's game. 
So we, we can now start chatting through them. But maybe we should start with palettes because you have so many palettes, I, I think 20 or so, perhaps more than that. And so for folks, either go to the Artblocks website and uh, check out Render's Game and check out, click on all items and you'll be able to see all the different palettes or just take a look in the images here that we put up. But yeah, you have palettes with fantastic names. Uh, we have Sin, we have Dark Crystals, Charcoal. I could guess what that one was about. But I'd love to hear which one of these are, maybe you could tell us which are some of your favorites and any others you want to highlight. Yeah, sure. Um, so you nailed it on Charcoal there, P. That is absolutely a direct reference to the uh, to the experience that I had with Lee Bay's work. And that was the first palette actually that I that I put into the piece. Um it was just a you know thank you to Lee for his his beautiful work and the inspiration. Um not that it, I don't even don't even know if he'll look at it, but you know it's uh it just made sense to me. Um I think a lot of the other palettes, there's a few so things like uh, Olivetti, um Beige Box, um uh the Randy palette, they they kind of reference uh some of that some of that sort of uh I guess the sort of science progression that I've always found so interesting um, as um, how do I describe, I'm just trying to think of the best way to describe this. So I've always been fascinated by obviously futurism and kind of old sort of ideals of the future. And a lot of that kind of got manifested in the, the sort of eighties and the seventies the in, um, you know, computer advertising or, or, or the sort of materials that we made around computing. So I have a huge love for the kind of 1950s Olivetti posters, for example, which is like super early sort of um, typewriters uh, that sort of started to become a little bit more, um, a little bit more intelligent, we should say, and sort of started unlocking people to do a little, you know, slightly cleverer things. Um, and, you know, some of the artists, I think, who were, who were doing those posters, people like Cooper Hewitt and, Giovanni uh, Pintori, who just do the most wonderful sort of screen print esque graphics work. So, like the Olivetti palette, I think would probably be the most uh, contentious palette potentially among, among the among the sets. Very bright, very vibrant. It's kind of my my sort of interpretation. I think of of kind of how those palettes probably look and looked and felt at that time. Uh, I yeah, I hope I hope those land. I think I think that's probably one of my favorite ones. Then. Um, Things like Beige Box, you know, that's a nod to, you know, uh, the work that Paul Rand was doing for people like Xerox and, you know, the amazing logo that he did for Next. These kind of, you know, futurist visions of what graphics could look like around computing, um, you know, taking into consideration all of the graphics, that, the graphics technology that kind of existed then. And, yeah, they're just lovely bookmarks in the history of, of kind of futurism and, and computing combined. So... Yeah, though that those those are some of my favorite ones. There's well, there's dark. There's two that pique my interest uh, just purely by the name. One is Fisher Price, which my having little kids, uh, my brain just goes to automatically. <laughs> but also the the Frank Minimal. What, what can you explain? Maybe some of the intent behind those two. Those those seem to be captivating just from a naming perspective. Yeah. So. Um... Fisher Price is actually a palette that I I originally put together for Mind the Gap. Um, Fish, there's a few palettes here actually that are, they're they're not the same palettes. They're sort of modifications to kind of work with these pieces. Um, but you can actually find a couple of pieces. Fisher Price is one of them that goes all the way back to Mind the Gap, and you'll also find it in you know Shapes on a Plane. Um, but that piece, uh, so Fisher Price particularly, was about the experience 
that I had as a kid, you know, playing with these primary colors, making something really joyful, but also slightly chaotic and messy at the same time. Um, and it just felt such a perfect fit for Mind the Gap. And actually it works really well um, in this context too. So it, that's more of a continuation than it is necessarily um, iteration on a theme. Uh, the Frank palette is from some of Frank Lloyd Wright's work. I've always really loved um, sort of beautiful uh, architectural drawings and sketches. And I've just found his use of color really emotive. And there's a couple of really sort of modernist sort of futurist um, sketches that I've that I'd seen of his work that just kind of really felt like they resonated for the piece with me. Um, I think, you know, my approach to making palettes is more trying to focus on the memory of my experience or my feelings around it to kind of come up with the right set of colors to, you know, to greater or lesser success. And, you know, rather than just go, okay, well, I'm going to take these particular colors, if that makes sense. So what, some of them, Olivetti is a good example. You know, you won't find those exact combinations in any of the work by Kipi Hu or Giovanni Pintori is what I imagine that feeling would have been at that particular point in time. So just because I've clicked render uh, through some of the, the explore possibilities over and over again. And what I'm fascinated with is you, you get these pieces that have almost like a stained glass type of color variation throughout all the different triangulated uh, I'll call it sand pieces. And then you have these others. I mean, I, I clicked one that was just like, I mean, it was all purple. Is there a <laughs> controlling trait that maybe – and again, I, I'm a big fanboy of Ori by James Merrill, but you know he has this uh, trait called exclusive, but exclusive, right? Where all of a sudden it takes the palette and it emphasizes one particular color. Is there something similar there, or what, what's kind of governing that output? If you don't mind me digging into a little bit of details there. Yeah, no problem. So there's a few ways that colors can be applied. So actually, at the end of the algorithm, what it does is it takes all of this reconstructed geometry. Uh, and it goes through every single triangle and every single line, and it sorts each triangle into a list uh, with the biggest triangles at the top and the smallest triangles at the very bottom. And it says, okay, how many of these triangles do I want to give some sort of detail to? Uh, and it can either roll a detail or it can roll a color. Um, but the rolling of that dice is determined by another noise field. So that, that it will depend on the structure of the rest of the piece as to what gets given color. And it will also depend on the tension of the noise field overall across the piece. And again, with the compression and the, the high pass or low pass, sort of what, what that will pick up. Um, so it actually really varies a lot. If you end up with a really tight noise field, you can end up with these you know, very stark contrasts between uh, colors. So I'll iterate through the palette really quickly and you'll end up seeing you know, four or five different colors in a really small area. Whereas if the noise field is much looser or the piece is much looser in the way that everything's be, been reconstructed, you might suddenly start seeing similar colors sitting together. Um, there's, also, there's also a big variation in the palette, actually, of, of kind of the range of, of hues and, and sort of the contrast in the colors that are sort of set as accents. So aubergine mono is probably the purple one that you mentioned, and that doesn't have a huge amount of additional kind of accent colors to it. It's, you know, it's a lot more uniform as a palette, but it ends up being a lot more subtle as a kind of overall experience. So there's a lot of, yeah, there's quite a bit of complexity in how the palette will interact with the traits within the piece. So I think you'll end up seeing 
you know, palettes actually looking extremely different um, across multiple different pieces. And part of, you know, the joy for me is, is letting that natural process kind of take its place. Um, yeah, so I'm intrigued to see what people enjoy out of them. Well, I wanted to commend you just because uh, as I go through this more and more, the, the, the palettes, and I don't know a better word for this, but they just look fresh. They don't feel like they've been repurposed. I mean, obviously, Fisher Price, you know, actually, I, I love that palette on Mind the Gap, but the, the, the outputs I've seen, they don't feel like repurposed. They actually feel very original. So I wanted to commend you on, on finding a way to bring the, the coloration and the geometry together in a way that uh, was, for me, at least personally speaking, very captivating. Um, thank you yeah i mean it's, it's a lot it's a lot of tweaking <laughs> but it's it's great right like that's that's what this is all about and to hear the amount of effort and and time and consideration and quite honestly i'm hearing a undertone of pride that you're taking in your work it, i just wanted to commend you and and say that it definitely shows thank you p that means a lot i appreciate it we're, we're gonna go through some more of these traits and the the depth of thought that you went into this, I think will be really apparent to all the listeners. And, you know, this is something I just wanted to point out really quick. Like we know that you, you are a full-time artist. This, this is what you spend a lot of time on. This is not easy to do, but sometimes I think it can be lost on us, even Jared and I, when we're interviewing artists about just the level of complexity. And like I said, the thought that goes into all of these decisions and so I, I really uh, appreciate that as well. And, and you taking the time to explain these. And I will say, I, I've gone through a bunch of these iterations. They are fantastic. Like, I, I didn't feel like there was, a, I mean, obviously, they're all the same algorithm. And there's that connection, that, that string that ties it all together. But they are very, very varied. So you did a really good job in mixing that up and doing long form well. And b before we dive into the other some of the other categories here um super quickly the second allow list there's 10 minutes left there's a one of the links up here that i pinned will take you there it should end in collectors dash corner dash two and the password for that is four five six folks have been asking so the last time i'll uh, i'll put it out there uh and so now i can fully focus on deconstructing some of this art and the plan is we'll kind of talk through some more traits for 10 minutes. And then at the hour, we'll have folks come up and ask questions if they have any questions for MV. So, um, and I also pinned another tweet up here, as I mentioned, that has a, a snapshot of all of the traits that are out there. So MV, you know, we've got about 10 minutes here. What would you like to highlight? Um, perhaps genome base you had mentioned before. Well, I'll let you decide, but... What do you think would be, what would you like to explain to folks here as to what these different traits lead to aesthetically? Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think the genome base is probably the best one to, to dig into a bit more. The, I think the way to think about the genomes is they're not fixed. You know, a filled is not always going to look exactly the same. A giant is not always going to look exactly the same. Um, I think the way to think about those is almost like circles on a Venn diagram that all overlap in the middle. So it's really just the starting point of where the algorithm begins. Uh, and you know, there's a whole space that they can explore. Um, and sometimes they'll overlap into other spaces as well. So you might find a field that looks a lot like a giant or a giant that looks a lot like a deconstruct or a you know, deconstruct that looks a lot like a fragment. Um, but that's intentional. These are just kind of ways of almost categorizing the sort of 
aesthetic of each of them, which I think is is quite helpful. Um, it's also there in the code. I use it as a creative way of of actually, um, you know, defining certain chunks. I would say out of the kind of latent space of all of the pieces that can exist in this piece, um, and they each individually, you you should notice kind of a difference between how they operate. I've been putting a couple of tweets out to give a bit more description of sort of the, I guess, the, the pure looking versions of those. Um, but I think it's going to be the ones that are in between those that people are probably going to find the most interesting. I mean, that's I've spent a lot of time with this algorithm, and those are the ones that I find the most interesting, uh, most definitely. Um, as we've only got 10 minutes left, maybe if there's any particular traits you guys want to go through, by all means, uh, give me a shout. Well, I, I do think it would be awesome to talk about the Straussian true or false, since that's like a... Oh, a yeah, that's true. Easter egg. That's yes. very, very true. So um, I'm a big fan of uh, Andrew Strauss's work. Uh, so Architlex was one of my favorite pieces that he created um, quite a while ago now, actually, uh, that, I, that I collected. And when I mentioned this idea of sort of construction and then deconstruction of the piece... One of the processes in the deconstruction is that it removes a lot of the, the sort of structural elements that sit outside of the bounds of these intersected lines. And uh, when I switched that off, uh, I started getting these pieces that ended up looking and feeling like they reminded me a little bit of uh, maybe how Archiplex could have worked. And um, so I pinged Andrew and I said, hey, uh, you know, this is kind of reminding me a little bit of your work. Firstly, you know, is this okay? And he was like, yeah, it's cool. He's a really lovely guy. And uh, then I said, you know, would it be all right if I, if I turned that into a, a trait for the piece to kind of honor what you've done with, with Archiplex? And he said, yeah, no worries, go for it. And, you know, I don't think they look very similar at all, still obviously, obviously around his game. Um, but it was just a nice nod to, to an artist who I have a huge amount of respect for. Yeah, I love that. I love that uh, Easter egg. And I also love how it is, you know, you can draw inspiration from other artists and the communities open enough for you to build upon that. I think that modularized nature of, of code seems to cross over into generative art quite beautifully. So I, I, I think that's a really cool one that you answered in there. Um, another one maybe we could ask about really quickly is the... Um, the border. I know borders are often in gen art, and you you have one here that says a uh, construction lines. I was curious, what is a construction lines border? Mm, that's a really good pick, actually, Jared. The um, so the border actually does make a huge difference to the to, to the results of the look at the piece. Um, when there's no border, the geometry can effectively draw itself well outside the bounds of the canvas uh, if it wants to. So you end up with these kind of big structures that can sort of overlap the border. Um, construction lines you'll recognize, uh, it's when the lines within the piece, when you have filled lines that sort of, you know, uh, show the, the original structure or at least a peek at what the original structure looked like, they start to become sketches towards the very edge of the border. Um, and it just felt like a really nice way to kind of contain a subject within the piece. So I, I really like the construction lines look. Um, and then margin is very simple. It's it's uh, really just a, a fixed width uh, border that kind of frames the the piece inside. Um, but the border will often be the either the background color or the line color, depending on how the piece is actually set within the canvas. Um, and I believe there is another one. The name is not off the tip of my tongue. Yes, detail gap. 
so detail gap's an interesting one. What it does is it looks at all of the geometry that's in the scene um, and it just checks to see, okay, is any geometry kind of escaping this particular scene? Is it sort of overlapping with the with the space outside the border? And it will just prune any geometry um, that, that, that would have sat there. So what you end up with is this very kind of natural sort of contained structure um, rather than it being something that kind of escapes from the bounds. Um, so really a lot of these are just, you know, processes of kind of trying to find a subject and find a focus for, you know, the... Um, this sort of reconstruction process. And so the border does actually have a big impact on how the eventual, the eventual piece looks. Well, I noticed through some of the outputs that I've been perusing the, the lines in between all the, the different shapes end up having a coloration is, is what, is, is that palette dependent or is that uh, another trait? Are we picking up on something unique? What can we tease out here? <laughs> the lines between the different shapes end up having a coloration. What do, what do you mean by that? The like the, the literally the lines in between all the the triangles are almost weaves mm -hmm. in through I at one particular output I don't have it up on screen anymore but had like a a purple instead of like a hard black line in between all the different shapes there was like a almost like a purple coloration to it which seemed very yeah, and sometimes unique. they're white so like between the geometries in the middle of the piece the, the lines that segment the geometries. I see, I see. Yeah, I see what you're, what you're saying. Um, are you talking about the, yeah, so the the sort of thick lines that kind of run through the piece, or are you talking about the fragments thick specifically? Lines. Thick lines. Yeah. Yeah, so those, those thick lines will get given um, a color uh, depending on a bunch of factors within the piece. Um, one of them is what type of border does it have? Um, another one is uh, what is the genome that I'm that I'm running from. Uh, those are chosen from a smaller subset of the original palette. So you might find lines that are, you know, uh, there's one actually which is a really good example. Um, I forget which palette it is now, um, but it was. Uh, you'll see these really intensely pink lines kind of running through the the scene, and sometimes they're pink and sometimes they're not pink. But the pink ones, I kind of left that in as a bit of an Easter egg because the palette really reminds me. If you go and look at the original book of Ender's Game, uh, it's this beautiful science fiction scene, but it has this vibrant pink Ender's Game writing on the front of it. Uh, so that was kind of a nice little little Easter egg. And so the, the line is often used as kind of an accent to play with the border and then to kind of break up the structure, if that makes sense. But the line itself can be can be different colors depending on how the palette is used to that. There you go. We finally teased out an Easter egg. We were finally able to get one out of you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Any other Easter eggs before we bring up some audience members that you would uh, feel comfortable sharing? I always like to ask the question. You never know unless you ask, right? Uh, there are so many properties. So it's funny because when when I'm making this piece, I'm not thinking about metadata, but the metadata is kind of an afterthought for me. Um, if you, there's actually a tweet that I put out, uh, gosh, I think it was a few weeks ago now, that showed kind of like a, a debug view of what Render's game looks like when I'm making it. And down the left-hand side, you can see you know, a list of all of the properties that I'm thinking about when a piece is kind of being generated. And so I think about those properties, but, you know, in terms of you asking whether there's Easter eggs in the code, well, go and have a look at just how many properties there are, you know, in that list that are not something that are not as, you know, simple as what we see in kind of the metadata, because that's really how I think about the piece itself. Um, there is one trait 
there is one that's not listed in the metadata that is pretty unlikely, I think, to come out in the final step, but might happen, um, and we'll see. And I think everyone will probably know if that happens. I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> Damn, you, you had me on the edge of my seat. I was shoveling the popcorn in my mouth waiting for the, the delivery, and, and uh, we're just going to have to wait. I can't wait. I, I hope it's whoever wins the allowance that they get that one. MV. <laughs> that would be that, something. That would be well, awesome. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all this. We wanted to open up to the audience here. We have Ron Crypto who's requested. So, Ron, how are you doing? And yeah, what would you like to ask MV? Well, Ron's figuring out the mute button. Uh, I'll ask one question. And again, audience members, please feel free to, to hop up. I know some of you guys are at work listening in the background, which we greatly appreciate just the listenership. Uh, and if you do want to come up and ask, uh, now's, your, now's your time. But um, is there any output that maybe in your dream state, Envy, you're hoping to see? Is there anything that, uh, fingers crossed, you hope the alg algorithm pukes it out? Um, there is a really interesting interaction that can happen with fragment um and some of the uh scale property so scale is an interesting one because what it does is it resizes the whole bounds of the space that it builds this this structure in the first place um, and it lets the structure be much much larger so if you have a small scale, it's it's like taking all of the stuff that you would normally see in a renders game and making it much smaller and then letting the rest of the space also be used as part of the canvas. Um, but there's a really interesting react, uh, sort of interaction between uh, the fragment genome and that particular scale uh, property when it gets down to sort of the small end um, that I'm sort of secretly hoping we'll see pop out. Um, that would I would love to see the yeah I'd love to see that come out of the uh, results. So I mean, as I say, like you know, these are all the space between all of these genomes and all of these different um, these different uh, traits and all the, all of the things that you see in the in the code example I sent. There's there's a lot of space there. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we get. Yeah, you're you're toying with something. I mean, there's I, I love when you can play around in the extremes of the algorithm, there was a, there was a mega trait in that trait also, correct? Yes, there is. Yeah. And um, I think I've kind of figured that one out, but yeah, the, I think there's like tiny mega small and, and one other, not that I'm obsessing over the traits already, but the, it's actually, sorry, it's, I just have to go and check. It's contrast range where you've got the, uh, the mega. mega. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That, that one, I'm, I'm curious to see how, how that affects things, but I'm glad to see Node came up on uh, on stage. We were we were fanboying over over the project yesterday. So, is there anything in particular you wanted to ask? Yeah, well, maybe just to continue the the fanboying. Uh, it it looks amazing. So I wanted to just say thank you. Uh, and I'm also you know curious the you now I feel like you're bridging the gap. Uh, no pun intended, right? You've done GM down. Now you've done art blocks, uh, which I think is it's so cool to see that you're doing that. How, how has that experience been kind of working in both sides of the equation? And then one one other question that I have is, uh, I, forgive my ignorance if, you, if this has been mentioned somewhere, but will there be uh, printable components to this? Because uh, I think this would look good on paper as well. 
Yeah, I'll thank you, Nerd. That's really great to hear. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks, buddy. The yeah, so working across all of these different things, I think you know it's funny because for me, I think as we we sort of said we're trying to do something something new here, and I love trying to do something new because a lot of the time that forces me to learn something new. So you know when I built my own whole thing for for Zed Huge and then sort of moved into you know Cypher invited me to come and join um, GMDAO and you know we were talking about building a studio it just it felt like the right place to be for me you know making something new trying something different and we did some really cool stuff that I don't think you know GMDAO gets enough enough credit for like uh, you can actually bring any type of uh, code to GM Studio, you you know, it doesn't have to be written in JavaScript. You can you can write a shell script, right? And we can work out how to put that on chain and render it. The the the, the system is so malleable, um, and it was interesting because that came from. Well, I mean, I I was discussing this with the team there, and you know, we were talking about like you know what some of my challenges were, kind of doing Zed Huge, and you know, that wasn't written in JavaScript, for example. But all of the platforms that exist out there were kind of JavaScript focused, um, so. You know, getting to try new things and sort of open up some some new opportunities kind of just felt like the right space. It was never a conscious choice for me of, you know, do I want to do it on Artblocks or do I want to do it on GM Studio? Um, you know, obviously, I've always wanted to do a piece on Artblocks because, you know, those they've set the standard in sort of telling this story. And I think the community they've built and the platform that they've built is just absolutely incredible. Um, for me, I, I wanted to go through that process of kind of learning a lot about that myself you know so yeah I'm I guess I'm kind of working across these things I want to obviously do something that's, that's meaningful for for art blocks and you know with you know be part of that ecosystem is so important to me um but yeah I don't think I'm I don't really feel like I'm kind of choosing sides if that makes sense totally. <laughs> and I hope people don't see it that way no and that's why I think it's so uh, great right it's uh artists working wherever you know, wherever you can and, and kind of breaking down those boundaries. So absolutely love it. Cool. Thank you. Your second question, I think, was on prints. Um, so I, I love doing prints. If you go on my website, you can order prints of any of the pieces that you might hold of mine. And I do a lot of test prints in advance to make sure that they they look really good. They're made here in London by my favorite print shop and I'll sign them and, you know, ship them out to you guys. So, uh, uh, yeah. I will definitely be opening up prints for this one. I'm looking forward I'll to it. I love it. Thank you so much for all the info. Well, my pleasure. Node shared with me yesterday. He's down to, to 9 ETH. So I have a sneaking suspicion after this mint, he might be uh, be a little bit further further down on his uh, reserves. So, Dude, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've already done this the, a raffle twice here. So, you know, I don't know if we're allowed to do it twice, but I did it, I did it the first <laughs> time and the second time. So, you know, fingers crossed here. That is for sure. No, I'm looking forward to, to the Mint. Um, again, anybody listening, there's open forum to come up and ask a question of MV. You know, please feel free to, to hop in. Uh, definitely an opportunity to that I don't think a lot of people have is to have that artist direct connection. So please, please, please feel free to, to come up and ask that burning question. Yeah, and then Ronnie, yo, yo, yo. thanks for coming on stage. Yo, what's up, what's up? Yo, I really love the, the art, render games. It's amazing. I have been uh, the holder of the uh, Mind the Game, a gap, I guess. That's also really cool. So uh, 
I just want to ask, like, for the, the allow list, right? Will the like holder get the chance to to probably like raffle for allow list for the random games? Uh, not not in this case. So uh, MV had some artist allow list, and then for us, it's just going to be the raffle for this specific uh, spaces here. I see. I see. I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. But sorry. Go ahead, MV. That's all good. Um, there was a. If, um, I do have my own Discord. I kind of try and keep it pretty small. I might have just made a mistake in mentioning it. Um, but there are some. <laughs> there are some some kind of long term old school collectors there, and we have a little sort of community for people who who, who do hold pieces. Um, so yeah, if, if there was going to be one of those, it would probably start there. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Appreciate. No worries. And MV, I have a question for you. As you know, this doesn't pertain specifically to Render's game, but it could. You know, a lot of artists have opened up Discords and are really leaning into the Web three community building, oftentimes based on a specific collection. Uh, Gazers comes to mind, where there's like the Gazers Discord. How do you think about that? Uh, if if you have so far in terms of this more direct relationship with your collectors, that is, is pretty unique to web3 at the moment um yeah it's not something i don't think it was something that i've really intentionally you know pursued in a sense i think um well my discord for example you know i never i didn't even set that up that was that was done by a few people who just really loved my first piece and they said hey you, you've really got to kind of put this together we'd love to have a place that we can hang out and talk about this work and it was amazing because they as a community came together put it together, they, they helped me understand how to, to structure all of that. And so it was really built by them, you know, in a, in a way. And, you know, it's, it's such an honor to have that happen. And I think, you know, this is just, this is just how we work now. This being in contact with everyone all the time through, through text, through platforms. And yeah, I love it. It reminds me so much of when I was doing demo scene stuff, when I was sort of, you know, 13, 14 years old, uh, sitting at home on IRC, in uh, in the farm I grew up in, so it's 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 amazing how little of that has kind of changed in a sense. Um, but I do think you know, me being an artist and trying to get trying to sort of understand a bit about what people's experiences of my work, um, you know, it's the hardest thing to do once you've been working on something for so long to get a bit of perspective and be able to take that step back and imagine kind of what someone's experience of that's going to be for the first time. Um, it's just so incredible to be able to do that within you know 10 seconds put something out there get people's experience see what they're kind of seeing in it and just you know use that to sort of reorientate your own understanding of your own work and how you can maybe see it in a different way uh, and i just think it's so incredibly helpful and fast and brilliant and uh yeah i look i'm not an expert at it but i very much appreciate and understand you know why it's brilliant for you know everyone here artists collectors and you know, I, 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 it's something I want to try and understand better and do in a very kind of honest and, and me sort of way. Yeah, I, I love it. And I think that as us collectors, we, we've talked about this with a few artists. I know there can feel like a lot of pressure that you always have to be available. But what we really pick on, up on the most is when people are being authentic. And I think that it seems like you're doing this really authentically in a thoughtful way. And that was expressed beautifully here on the spaces. So I want to say thank you for sharing everything. I think we're going to wrap it up now, but we really appreciate everybody showing up. I mean, 
this is what the craziest stuff is about Web3 and Gen Art for me. There, I don't know how many people came on here. Let's say there's about 100 on here right now from all over the world, all sorts of backgrounds and interests. Even I know this from some of the folks that I personally know here. And so it's just such a cool space, such a cool time. And we really appreciate you being a part of this and, and sharing your beautiful work and your time with us here today. Guys, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you inviting me on to do, yeah, especially something in a new way, which is, is my favorite thing. So yeah, Jared and, and P, you guys are, are legends and I've, I've loved so much of the podcasts you put out with, uh, you know, your perspectives on the market and your perspectives on art. It's exactly the kind of thing that I think as, a, as an artist, I, I don't often get to see and you've really helped me kind of peel back, I think, a lot of that surface layer. So yeah, thank you to you guys as well for, for doing this. And uh, thank you for coming on. Um, it, it, we're, we're truly honored that you would want to use this platform as an opportunity to, to showcase your project. So truly, truly humbled by your kind words. Um, I'm somewhat blushing. You can't see me, but I do appreciate that. I know <laughs> P does too. So thank you for sharing with the listenership. Thank you for being as open and, and vulnerable with your past and, and what got us to this point uh, for renders game you know for those who are not aware which i can't imagine but it will be available on art blocks will be a dutch auction starting at 8 eth for anybody not familiar with the dutch auction it drops in certain time increments in price and then there will be an eventual mint out uh, which would be called the uh, the mint out price so you know, please feel free to to engage with anybody here. We're, we're all open. My DMs, P's DMs are open. We want to help in any way possible. Discuss through it. Uh, you know, please get familiar with the algorithm. Artblocks is a great platform that allows you to to go through a lot of test outputs. So there's there's a lot going on here, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't at least close this by saying, amazing project, great work. Uh, I'm I'm constantly amazed by the the quality of work that you continually put out, you know, all of your projects are, are very beautiful. So thank you very much for allowing each and every one of us to see and the collectorship to partake in your journey. We're very, very honored. Thank you guys. It's, it's been a pleasure. Yup. And for, thanks again, MV, everybody who's here listening, everybody who's going to listen later, everybody who tuned in and left. Thank you for coming and listening to this amazing story about your work renders game. Monday, February 13th, 1 p.m. Eastern, as Jared mentioned, the Dutch option. And we will reach out to the Allow List winner over the weekend. So thanks again, everybody. This will be recorded. We'll put it out on our podcast. You can listen to it on Twitter as well. And until next time, we'll see you then. Thank you for tuning into Collector's Corner. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you like this episode and want to help us out, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on YouTube. Please also follow us on Twitter for announcements as we expand to other social and content platforms. Our Twitter handle is at collectors underscore XYZ. We'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So please comment or reach out. We're always striving to be more useful and get better so we can help you in your collecting journey. The Collector's Corner team and their guests are not registered investment advisors. All views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions and are not specific inducements to make particular investments or investment strategies and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This show is solely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.